I'm Sharon Pratik, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I usually speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. This week, I am speaking to two people who definitely know all about the reinvention of retail. We're doing things a little bit differently for this special year-end episode. In the studio with me today are Kale Weissman and Anna Hensel, both from the Modern Retail Editorial Team. Hi, Kale. Hi, Anna. Hey. How's it Hi, going? Hi, it's going very well. We're excited to have you here with us. Okay, so we're going to start a little bit by talking about kind of what's been most interesting to both of you as you've covered the reinvention of retail of this industry um, for the last year or six months plus. Um, Kel, you start. You tell me what has been most exciting for you about um, this industry and the changes it's going through. What's stood out to you? I mean, what we're seeing, there's one interesting thing we're seeing, which is with DTC companies and the general transformation with DTC companies and how, I don't know if it's exciting, but it's really interesting to see the dynamics of it and that the bubble is likely about to burst. And we're seeing, seeing a lot of companies that are talking all about how customer acquisition is getting more expensive, things like that. They're making deals with companies like Walmart, big big retail partnerships. And I think that that's one of the more exciting, interesting things is just how that model is going to shift over time. Yeah, th- there was a lot in there. So let- let's unpack that a little yeah. bit. Um, and I want to hear from Anna on this too, because she's been doing some great work on direct-to-consumer brands. So one of the things you first said, is this a bubble? Is it going to burst? Mm-hmm. What do you what do you sort of mean when you're thinking of a bubble, especially as you've been reporting on this? I mean, it, bubble is really in terms of VC. There's been a lot of capital going into these companies, and Anna can talk a lot about this too, but pretty much a lot of these companies got a lot of funding brought into them. And because of that, they need to grow at a very fast clip so that they can get, you know, investor returns. And some of them won't be able to do that because maybe they have one hero product or they they aren't able to create a suite of products or their other pivots aren't going well, whatever happens. So I imagine when you say a bubble burst, maybe there'll be consolidation. Who knows what's going to happen? But we've seen over the last few years a lot of money going into these companies. And I think something's going to happen soon, which will be really interesting to watch just because the, the dynamics and models kind of shifting now. Yeah. Anna, do you think bubble going to burst? And what does that sort of look like when we say, is it going to be consolidation? Is it going to be brands dying? What do you think sort of you're expecting to happen? Yeah. I think in my conversations with founders and investors this year, there's definitely an acknowledgement that just a direct-to-consumer business isn't necessarily right for venture capital investment. Um, that alone is not going to create the 10x return that a venture capitalist needs. And so I think it's going to be a little bit scary. I think you're going to have some companies struggle to raise their next round of funding, and maybe they'll will lead to layoffs. Maybe that will lead to a fire sale. But I also think it's exciting in the sense that I think some of the companies that are starting up today are trying to be more thoughtful thoughtful about how do we get to profitability, what's our clear plan to do so. They are more open to selling in retail stores uh, or striking partnerships earlier on that can lead to greater distribution. And so I think we will see um, this next crop of probably not direct-to-consumer brands, but whatever you want to call it, um, (laughs) who have a better plan for profitability than maybe the first generation of startups. But that's interesting, right? Because I think when, you know, we sort of report on this, we call them almost direct-to-consumer as a form of short form. Like, what we really mean are these brands that are started recently, so they're startups, they're probably small, they're in the consumer space mostly, and they have a significant portion of their sales that they're doing online, at least to begin with. I think a lot of the conversation you've reported, you've both reported on this quite a bit, is just that direct-to-consumer may just be something that you launch with. You can't, can you really have 
a profitable business, and I think that's what you're talking about, what you're when you seek to solely be direct to consumer. Do you think sort of there's like the fallacy of DTC? Like you can't actually have a very profitable business if you're only going to be selling online direct to the consumer and not having these other partnerships or wholesale or any of those elements in your business model? That's right. I don't think that you can be direct to consumer and profitable only online. I think you can if you have stores. I mean, there's so many other traditional retail brands that are technically direct to consumer. Lululemon, for example. Uh, Other brands like Nike are trying to sell more direct to consumer, but I don't think that you can build a direct to consumer business solely online that's profitable. Um, And I see a lot of people saying, well, these aren't direct to consumer companies, they're digitally native vertical brands, technically. Right. And and so it's not, which is it? I mean, you can't really. And I think the original promise, and Kel, I'm interested to hear from you specifically on this, because the original promise was that these companies, because they were selling directly to a consumer, would come then with lower prices, Mm -hmm. would have a more transparent pricing model, because there weren't all these markups caused by middlemen. Is that true? No. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think it depends on the company. Sure. And like, I think that the the model has changed, but I think that a lot of the quote-unquote DTC companies and or DNVBs, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. them, they have similar costs that, that other traditional brands have had in the past. I mean, just to... I, I think some of them, their selling point is that they aren't actually cheap, but they're quality, quote unquote, and that, you know, because they directly sell, source it, then, you know, you're paying directly to them. You know, they're... Some of them do that. Some of them might not do that. That's, you know, in the consum- the consumer's choice in, in terms of that. One thing that is interesting about that Anna was talking about that I, I, I wonder, and I'm sort of creating this theory as we go right now, is that I wonder if it's kind of cyclical or sinusoidal in terms of, you know, customer acquisition costs for, you know, before it was better that you had partnerships, that you were in traditional retail. And then the reason why DTC brands started was because it was just cheap customer acquisition. And so the, the sort of the tide shifted. And I, now the pendulum seems to be going back. We've talked to VCs or I've talked to VCs who have said, if I'm talking to a CPG brand or any new brand, they have to have some pathway to either being on Amazon or talking to mm-hmm. Walmart or something like that. And it just seems to, as the years go on, maybe every five to 10 years, it shifts based on you know, how you can get the eyeballs and how you can sort of acquire those customers and get those sales to that to that point. That, that is interesting. And I think that a lot of brands kind of started because it was easy to start. Exactly. It was easy to market, yeah. to your point, but also easy to just start. Shopify has yeah, made it easy. make for, a website. Exactly. So you start a website. A lot of those things, there's been an ecosystem built up around being able to start companies that simply didn't exist mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And that combined with a class of really smart people with good business ideas plus Instagram, plus a great aesthetic kind of makes for the perfect cocktail that mm-hmm. enabled a lot of these businesses to start. But you you know, you brought up Amazon and that's, I actually did want to sort of segue a little bit to talking about that. A lot of these direct-to-consumer companies have been courted by Amazon because they're saying, hey, look, it makes sense. You want to born online, live online. You want to grow beyond the, your own O&O online store, sell on Amazon, the biggest marketplace on earth. And yet, and we've reported on this quite a bit, DC brands don't want to, or many of them have actively said, hell no, we will never do it. A, why is that happening? Can you tell us a little bit about that? And B, do you expect that to change next year as a lot of these brands grow up and realize they don't really have a choice but to sell on Amazon? Uh, 
I mean, the reason why is because uh, Amazon takes off at least 15% off the top. And so they don't, you know, if in the minds of those brands, if they are able to not sell on that platform and like lose, you know, that, that percentage, why not if they're able to get them elsewhere? But isn't the sheer volume of it not enough to convince these founders? Like, what do you hear from founders when you're talking to them and you say, why don't you sell on Amazon? Is it purely a monetary economic thing? I mean, I think it's also a branding thing. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're not on Amazon because we would never be on Amazon. But then a lot of them now are at least, you know, slowly testing it out to see how it goes. A lot of companies I talk to, you know, they don't like to be on Amazon, but they do it because that's where they get all of their new customers and then they try to funnel them back into their website as much as possible. I think that... Now, more and more, and in the coming year, you're going to see a lot of founders, a lot of companies like this, realize that they can't only have their website and they're going to have to test it out in some way. And mm-hmm. I've, like, in the only small amount that I've been reporting on this, I've seen a shift myself with how people are talking about it. You know, they, mm-hmm. they are realizing that maybe they do need to play ball with Amazon at least in a little bit so that they, you know, can acquire those new customers. But um, I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what Anna says about that. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest concern that I hear from founders just about why they don't want to sell on Amazon is uh, the lack of control they have over their own brand um, and also what they see as a lack of failure from Amazon to properly address counterfeits on the website. And to your point, while you might be able to uh, juice sales quite a bit by being on Amazon. If someone comes looking to buy your product and they end up buying a counterfeit product and they have a bad experience with that product, that also might turn off a potential customer from your brand. So I think it's, um, I think that Amazon does have quite a lot of work to do to win over more, uh, trust from these direct-to-consumer brands. And I think one of the big stories from this year that exemplified that was Nike pulling its products from Amazon. Uh, they did a two-year pilot where Amazon pledged to kind of crack down on uh, counterfeit Nike products better. And, uh, you know, Nike is also trying to grow its direct-to-consumer business. And Nike decided, you know what, we don't need Amazon. And I think it is exciting just because I don't think that uh, – any company needs to be on one particular website to grow their business. So I do hope that it uh, kind of opens up a conversation for more businesses about do we need to be on Amazon? Do we have other alternatives? The the Nike move is interesting to me. And I think Nike, because it's Nike, it is interesting, really. And they made an attempt. They were part of brand registry. They said, okay, we'll give this a shot. For others, the option simply doesn't exist to not be on Amazon, right? I mean, I'm curious about sort of we talked about DC brands, which have a certain cachet to them, et cetera. What about sellers? What about people who've kind of built their entire businesses on Amazon um, and whether they have counterfeit issues or whether they have control issues, maybe they have data issues or they have simply sort of frenemy issues, which is Amazon at any point can, especially in certain categories, create their own versions of the products that are being sold on their site and sell them themselves. Um, and we've seen that happen this year just alone with sort of pop sockets and sort of the big news there um, of exactly a lot of that happening on the site. Where is next year the year that Amazon kind of, I don't know, at least undergoes a change? They've got pressure from sellers. They've got pressure from big brands like Nike. They've got a lot of pressure from the current administration, but also potentially from Democratic candidates who are making sort of Amazon a key part of a lot of their speeches and their policy points. Is Amazon going to be in trouble? I 
I don't think they're going to be in trouble uh, as their sales clearly haven't slowed down. But I do think that uh, Amazon does need to open up more options for brands that want more control. Um, And so I think you will start to see smaller shifts, uh, maybe in terms of just different programs, Amazon pitches brands on. uh, But I do think that there's no slowing down in terms of brands and government's frustration with Amazon. Yeah, certainly. Um, What about you, Kale? Sort of reckoning or at least some sort of... Will Amazon give a little? Maybe. I mean, like, I think... think Anna's right that there are a lot of dynamics here, and I think that Amazon has been trying to make hand waves in the gesture of of brands, mm-hmm. uh, of of sellers, and it's had a lot of programs that I don't really think weren't intended to be effective, but were intended to look like they were being amenable to these companies. What's an example? Like, uh, I mean, like a lot of new marketing, A-B testing, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Like a lot of little portals to give them, you know, the attempts so that they could use Amazon products better, but only on Amazon, that Mm. kind of thing. I do think that over the next year, and this is, I've talked with a lot of sellers and they've all said vaguely the same thing, which is that one of their big issues, you know, there there are counterfeit issues, there is competition issues, but they just want more data. They They just want Amazon to give them anything about who their customer is. And I think that that might be, if Amazon were to provide just a little bit of that kind of data so that they understood how to better market on the platform, that would go a long way with sellers. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think that that is a small thing that Amazon could do that would actually be really tangible and helpful to all the the companies that are on the platform. One, too, of sort of the biggest effects of Amazon in just the retail industry has just been the changing nature of sort of consumer behavior. Yeah. And Amazon kind of drives expectations or sets them for an industry, and then the industry has no choice but to follow it. Um, and I think we've seen this with everything from same-day delivery or next-day delivery, now same-day delivery, everything from buy online, pick up in store in many cases. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of these sorts of opportunities for non-Amazon retailers, so the Walmarts, the Kroger's um, of the world, and kind of how that's been going. Because I do think that a lot of these things are being put in place without a real understanding of the real cost Mm -hmm. behind being able to deliver something in the same day or being able to create an infrastructure that allows for that to happen. Um, Walk me through kind of a couple of high-level points of what you found interesting in sort of improvements that retailers have made and how they've been going. Yeah, I think uh, the two most interesting stories of how retailers might try to compete with Amazon are Target and Walmart, and they've both taken different approaches this year. So Walmart, especially under Mark Lore, has really pushed to try to match Amazon as much as possible on speed of fulfillment and delivery. Uh, So they, you know, are pushing for next day delivery on select items, uh, but they've also tried to carve out their own defense against Amazon on grocery delivery. Uh, You know, Walmart has basically said that we see uh, our stores and their ability to fulfill fresh groceries as a key advantage we have over Amazon. So let's try to use that to drive our online business. And Target has also uh, 
really push to use its stores as an advantage. They, in particular, are trying to push to use their stores to fulfill more online orders. I Mm -hmm. believe the latest stat was 80% of online orders are fulfilled by Target stores through Mm -hmm. same-day delivery, through buy online, pick up in store. And I think it's, uh, I am encouraged to see that more retailers are saying, hey, why don't we try to use our stores as our advantage against Amazon? Because that's what Amazon doesn't have. And I think that's what you have to do as a retailer to survive against Amazon. You can't try to match them on everything. You have to figure out what your unique strengths are. How has that been going? Because I do think, and I think you're absolutely right. I think it's such a good point to make that you, why not use the advantage that you were, you had built into your business model? But the stuff doesn't go overnight. You can't start, say, it's buy online, pick up in store, and then expect immediately to get returns on it. You have to first sort of invest a significant amount of money into creating just the infrastructure possible. And then there's a little bit of a time period until things start sort of showing up in the earnings, right? Like, where are these retailers right now in kind of that cycle? Well, I think it depends on the retailer. I think it depends on what you're selling. So Target has uh, done, I think, quite well in this. You know, they've had some record sales numbers this year. And um, they, I think, especially have done well in uh, creating private label products uh, to create more favorable margins so that they can invest more in costly online fulfillment. Also on Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, you also have a retailer like Kohl's who does seem to, on the surface, be making all the right moves. They've invested in buy online, pick up in store. Uh, They recently struck this unique partnership with Amazon to accept online returns as a way to drive unique foot traffic into their stores. But because Kohl's is a department store that sells a lot of different type of products. I mean, it's just a tough environment for department stores right now. You have to execute well in women's clothing, in men's clothing, in home goods. And so while they have made a lot of the right technological investments, they've still just struggled to grow sales because it's not just about, yeah, it's just not about having these uh, fulfillment options. It's also about getting the uh, basics right. Right. And now for a quick break for our messages. You mentioned grocery, and I'm interested to hear from Kale on this because I think grocery delivery is sort of one of those things that, well, A, a lot of people put a lot of money behind grocery being something they could excel at. And some of it, my theory was always because Amazon never managed to figure it out because Amazon never did grocery delivery. A lot of, despite sort of obviously the Whole Foods purchase, people expected a lot more to happen there. It hasn't happened. So everyone else said, wait, Walmart is what, like the number one grocer in America. So why don't we become a grocery? Why doesn't grocery delivery become our unique selling point or differentiating factor? Um, It's been sort of slow with grocery delivery, Um, especially because I think last year we really did expect, at least from our coverage, it seemed like, okay, this is the thing that will transform or grow like crazy this year. Hasn't happened. No. Why and kind of what are some of the obstacles we're hitting with grocery delivery? I mean, with grocery delivery, it's about, it's pretty much about fundamentally changing consumer patterns. Like, I'm really interested in just sort of all of the numbers and data that says that grocery delivery is the next big thing that's going to happen. That right right now, I think it's about 4% get there, it's delivered online. People say by 2025, I'm making that up, but something Mm -hmm. along, it could be as much as 30%. Mm. I don't know if it's actually going to hit that because, you know, there's a different, it took a long time for people 
to actually take to Amazon to have their stuff delivered, and that wasn't perishable food. And it's mm-hmm. also, there are a lot of people outside of cities, too. And so there are a lot of different factors that that I'm sure are built into the analyses, but I'm not sure how, how much, how correct that's going to mm. bear out um, as time goes on. I mean, I think that companies like Walmart, companies like Kroger, companies like Target, they all are investing millions of dollars in this bet that this is going to be the next big thing because it hasn't taken off yet. But the really big question is, when are people actually going to go online and buy all of their groceries? Another really interesting thing that all of these companies are investing in is alcohol mm. and alcohol delivery, which I'm actually just super interested in. a form in. of grocery. It, well, it kind it of is. is. For yeah, me, for me know. too. My yeah. weekly shop but usually like, includes an alcohol. That actually also, there, like there's just a lot of legislation and a lot of state laws in, involved with alcohol as is. And that sort of is a great example of why it's so difficult to sort of scale those programs because it's very localized and you have to sort of figure out a bespoke solution for each state, for each region, which has their own laws. And I think that it's not the same for grocery. Like you can, you can there are no laws prohibiting grocery mm. as is, but I think that just the fact that both of those areas have had difficulties growing those and getting people to actually do that sort of it helps explain why it's been such a such a slow go for all of it. But you'd place your bets on the alcohol. I think we're going to see interesting programs over the next year. I don't know if it's going to like hit the mainstream, but I think that all of them the was it the last one of the Walmart CEO very recently right. said that the one thing he really wants to focus on is adult bev and how that like most places aren't focusing on that and that's going to be a big thing. And if he says that, I believe when him. Walmart puts their minds to yeah. it. It's sort of like McDonald's deciding to put cucumbers on its sandwiches and <laughs> causing a national shortage of cucumbers exactly. almost immediately. Um one of the other big things, and I think this is you know true across modern retail, um, but also across our sister sites, Digiday and Glossy, is our renewed focus on work culture and workplace issues. Um, because we've realized, I think, and I think most people have realized this, is that a lot of what we're ta- just talked about when it comes to business model shifts and new ways of using stores and delivery becoming a big thing, or even just direct-to-consumer brands... All of these have human real real impact. I mean, um, everything from salaried retail employees uh, to people who are working inside startups with a lot of funding behind them and then being worked, you know, really, really hard for unreasonable goals and being set unreasonable in cases, customer experiences or um, customer experience goals. Um, obviously, I think most people by this at this point who've listened to this podcast have read uh, The Verge's excellent investigation of what they, you know, sort of looked at as a toxic work culture inside a way. Um, but it, it it's sort of been a list in a few companies this year that have kind of come to terms with the human cost and the workplace cost. And what does it really mean to found a company? What does it mean to say you're inclusive, but not really be inclusive from thinks to Lola, which only figured out a parental policy, you know, nine months into its existence. What is to you the most interesting part of work culture as it relates to each of your beats? And what do you plan to sort of focus your energies on in this particular issue next year? So I, uh, let me let me get my thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so pretty much I think what's interesting is that with the Away situation and with a lot of other companies, it sort of highlights how many companies focus on their culture and they focus on their growth and scale, but they don't think about sort of their front-facing staff, like customer experience, customer service, and those are the people who are on the front lines. And I think that that sort of highlights the really intrinsic culture that a company has and that a lot of what these these DTC companies who are selling things to, you know, consumer-facing products, 
they think of themselves very much in the way that tech thought of itself like 10, 15 years ago, grow at all costs, you know, hustle or die, that sort of thing. And they didn't really factor in the the human component of being bombarded with people who might not be happy with your product. And so we're see, we're beginning to see that sort of bear out. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of these companies are going to be faced with this question of kind of as we're growing, if our product is popular and thousands, if not millions of people are buying it, you know, how are we going to treat our staff? How are we going to grow our staff who are sort of the intermediaries between the brand and the product? Um, I mean, this is it's not dissimilar from what Facebook deals with with uh, content moderation like and the way that they treat this staff, you know, says volumes about how they how they approach their company and what they think their actual you know cultural philosophy is. And this is a business problem. This isn't yeah. just about let's be nice to people. No, because no, no. Of course you should yeah. be nice to people, but if your customer facing team, which is probably the differentiator for your startup. Absolutely. And is, they all talk about, you know, the, that, that's a big thing of how they talk. You know, you will talk to a human being if you text us, if you email us. Like, and that's that's the differentiator for them. You're not gonna get you know, you know, some recording if you call a phone number. But these people also are are, are people. Are people, yeah. So you have to sort of deal with it both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Anna, what do you think? Where is kind of the big story here? What I'm really interested in is watching how, as a lot of, uh, we talked about big box retailers are investing more in buy online, pick up in store. They're using their stores to fulfill more online orders. What that means for the jobs of people who work in those big box department stores. Number one, because as retailers spend more are looking for more money to spend on delivery, you are starting to see some retailers figure out how can we cut down on labor costs in store to potentially set aside more money to invest in things like buy online, pick up in store. Um, And the second component is just, I mean, this has always been a challenge for big box retailers, but it's kind of a, it's very much a calculation of, okay, how exactly how much staff do we need to staff a store? How can we do it more cost effectively? And uh, I think that you are going to see some retailers basically figure out what labor costs they can do without that maybe historically they've needed when uh, when they drove more sales in store. So, for example, Walmart in May, they announced they were testing out this new store structure where it would basically result in higher pay for the remaining employees, but they would cut out a few salaried managers. Now, Walmart hasn't said yet whether they're moving forward with this new store structure, but I think you're going to see more retailers test out new types of uh, stores staffing structures in um, the coming year. And it's going to be a big challenge to uh, basically reassure the remaining employees that, hey, uh, that you still have uh, a stable future at this company. I think that a lot of retail workers are really stressed about, could my job be the next to go in the next year, in the next two years, what have you? Yeah. Uh, and I think that I think and I'm interested in sort of coupling this with the other sort of surprising thing to me this year, which is well, not surprising, maybe, but has been sort of the resurgence of the physical retail store, because I think like Kale was saying earlier, now investors are asking questions about what's your Amazon strategy, what's your Walmart strategy, but also what's your physical retail strategy? And they're starting to ask that question very early on of startups and for established retailers there is room for physical retail. Physical retail is not dead. It's just changing or reinventing itself. So under both of these pressures, 
who do you hire and what do you make them do while they're there? Yeah, well, Target is a really interesting example. They uh, basically underwent this new program, which is called modernization. They have kind of implemented some new technology and reallocated worker hours to basically cut some of the backroom hours, but then reallocate that staff on the floor so that, in theory, they customers get better customer service, you have more people interacting with customers, and they have a better in-store experience. Uh, but as we talked about, all of this is happening when Target is trying to use its stores to fulfill more online orders. So it's a question of how long can retailers kind of sustain this for where they say, okay, we're going to move more people onto the floor to help more customers, but we're also fulfilling more online orders from our store. So how long can they go without needing to put some of those workers back into the back room? I think it's going to be something a lot of retailers are grappling with this year. Yeah, it's a question we'll be asking ourselves and covering on modernretail.co. Yes, we will. Kel Weissman, Anna Hensel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for today's very special episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. You'll be hearing more from us about our bold calls for next year, as well as our first ever Modern Retail Dictionary, which will be on the site next week. So please do check out modernretail.co. Thank you for listening. Our producer, of course, is Pierre BNMA, who also made our amazing theme music. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for sure Modern Retail Podcast, leave us a review, and hopefully a five-star rating. It helps new listeners find us. Thanks again for listening. 